Welcome to The Naked Monk. The Naked Monk is for those exploring life and the human condition. We are interested in ideas that were once the domain of religion or spirituality, but which today include existentialism, even atheism. Call it philosophy as a way of life, the yearning not just for what feels good, but for what is good. Hi, I'm Stephen Scatini. I was raised Catholic before I trained in depth as a Buddhist monk. Today I'm untethered, but I'm as fascinated as ever by what life can be and the creativity with which we pursue it. My guests and I are seekers of freedom, a deep life, and the wisdom of the heart. Come on in and join us. Today, I'm talking with Martin Aylwood. Martin spent five years exploring meditation in India and Thailand, and now teaches at his center in France and throughout the world. He emphasizes contact with nature as a resource for awakening, and he's taught for several years under the banner of Work, Sex, Money, Dharma. In this conversation, we discuss the pragmatic side of Buddhism as opposed to its being a set of ideas or beliefs. We compare Buddhism with other contemplative traditions and ask whether contemplativeness itself is entering the mainstream. We look at American and other emerging forms of Buddhism. We talk about monastic life and samadhi versus the engaged life, about evolved as opposed to pathological mystical experience, about atheists and the concern of modern culture and about whether consciousness is necessarily destined to evolve. Here's our conversation. I'm talking today with Martin Aylwood on the question, does Buddhism matter? We've already started chatting about this before we turned on the mic, and um, Martin has told me that he actually has some experience with MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and he's very interested, as I am, in the way that this is entering popular culture. The conversation that we're just actually beginning on is, to what extent is Buddhism entering popular modern culture, I call it now, rather than Western culture? Uh, how is it seeping down in in ways that people don't actually identify as being necessarily Buddhist, or don't even know that it's Buddhist? So. Martin was just about to take off there on, on that topic. Yeah. Hi, Stephen. So I think, you know, of course, there are many ways to look at how it's entering the culture and many ways to look at the impact that's making, depending on, on where you stand. So if you, you know, for those who stand within Buddhism, it's easy to look at the way it's entering the general culture as what's getting lost, which are many of the cultural forms, of course. And that would be a source of concern for some. And for others, that would be a source of delight or relief that, you know, that some of the cultural baggage gets uh, left behind, as it were, and maybe think of as more essential is what's kept. For me, I think of the fact, and this is my orientation, my sort of central orientation with this, if you like, the fact that the Bud part of Buddhism, Bud means awake. So it's like a translation to make in my mind that what I'm thinking, I mean, when I say Buddhism is awakeism. In other words, the orientation towards waking up, towards a freer, fuller life. But of course, when we hear Buddhism, that's not necessarily what we hear. We hear the word Buddhism and we think of a systemized 
version of some beliefs and some forms and some practices, etc., etc. There's the argument about whether Buddhism is a religion or a philosophy, as if it is only one of those. Exactly, as if it, as if it can be defined by one or the other. Yeah, it strikes me as neither, actually. Yeah, I mean, I like I like uh, Stephen Batchelor's line that Buddhism isn't something to believe in; it's something to do. And that's something to do. The imperative to to explore one's life and free it up is is much more central than religion or philosophy, both of which kind of keep it in the abstract as a, a group of ideas or beliefs, basically. Philosophy is a group of ideas about life. Religion is a group of beliefs about life. But actually, the imperative to wake up, to examine one's life, which is some, some tools and some orientations, more of a compass to navigate one's inner life. Yeah, the, the, but there are many ways in which we can examine our lives, and the Buddhist way is very, very specific. It's it's quite different from, for example, certainly from the Christian way in which you might examine your life, or perhaps the Jewish way, in which it seems to me judging yourself by a set of predefined standards. Whereas in Buddhism, I think there's a greater sense of exploration. Would you agree with that? Well, I think, it, you know, there are many varieties of Buddhism, just like there are many varieties of, of Christianity or other religions. So I think, you know, when you look into the, the contemplative forms of many religions underneath and where they become a means to explore consciousness, then they lose a lot of their uh, both philosophical and religious trappings, the ideas and the beliefs. And I don't, I'm not sure that Buddhism is, is you know, it's, it's my toolkit of choice for exploring my life. But I'm not sure if it's that much different from the contemplative versions of those other things. I remember one of my teachers being at an interfaith conference with a, uh, where he was speaking with a Christian nun. And he was challenging the nun about the fact that all the while one has the idea of oneself and God as the figure that one's praying to or contemplating or relating to then the subject-object of that always creates a gap. And so, so what about that fundamental duality? If you've got God in the equation, you've always got a gap between self and God. And she looked at him with a rather puzzled look on her face, and she said, in the contemplative life, we've done away with that idea of God a long time ago. Of course, language makes duality, but one can make just as much duality in language in speaking about Buddhist practices or uh, orientations as others. So I'm not sure that Buddhism is as unique as we might like to think in that regard. You don't think the Buddha is pointing, I mean, for example, mindfulness, we can be aware of all the stuff that's going on in our mind. But Buddha points to certain things and says, this is really what you should be paying attention to, especially the, the way in which you see yourself, the story you tell you yourself about who you are. Now, that sort of thing, that approach to Buddhism or approach to self-examination, which is very Buddhist, is that entering the mainstream? Yeah, I, th I think it's very much entering the mainstream. I mean, largely in the guise of mindfulness, uh, like you say, in the kind of the secular presentations of mindfulness. And sometimes that the link to its kind of historical antecedents within formal Buddhism, we might say, are clear, and sometimes they're not clear. Some people practice mindfulness and not have much sense, if any, of its link to Buddhism, which I don't think is a problem particularly. There's, there's sometimes the criticism from within the Buddhism world that mindfulness, because it's sort of divorced from its historical uh, roots, and, and it might be highlighted which bits seem to be missing. But often, in my experience, the those that are complaining about what it's missing are those that don't know the secular versions of mindfulness from the inside, as it were. It's easy to criticize from 
without. And it seems to me like if you go to Asia and you go to the temple, you see what we might call entry-level Buddhism, right? And entry-level Buddhism, I would say, in Asia is go, you go, going to the temple, bowing, lighting incense, prostrating, chanting, the cultural forms. And it's very nice. It gives people a sense of comfort. It gives them a sense of faith. It gives them a sense of devotion. It sort of orientates them in some way to a sense of the meaning of life. But entry level, because you have to go beyond that into the realms of really seriously looking at your own mind and the, the practices that start to really transform and open up and free your mind. Now, in, the, in, the, in what you're calling um, modern culture and in, the, in the Western countries, that version of it is never going to be entry-level Buddhism. The temples and the incense and all that is not going to happen. But I would say even the forms of mindfulness practices, etc., which might be lacking in some of the real transformative depth and potential of Dharma practice, even though that might be lacking, that's entry-level Buddhism. Some people, just like some people who are content to just go to the temple and, and light incense, some people will be content with just a kind of light version of entry at that kind of entry level buddhism of mindfulness and they might they're not going to be interested in looking any further than that but that's fine that's good it still provides some sense of benefit and some sense of ease and some sense of being able to deal more skillfully with anxiety or whatever and yet some of those people will be turned on by the transformative potential of that and will look for deeper expressions it, if it doesn't transform you at all, it's not much use. And if it is transforming you, then who's to know where it's going to lead? There's the sense that it's not transforming you at all, though. And the thing is, first of all, he thought, well, let's not bother teaching. This stuff's too subtle and complicated to understand. And then he had the sense, oh, but there are some beings with little dust in their eyes. In other words, the amount of people that are going to be willing to really commit in the way that one usually needs to in order to really transform and liberate consciousness those people are going to be few whether whether through traditional forms or through mindfulness or anything else but to to dismiss the forms that don't take people through that fully transformative process as being somehow lacking or wrong i think that's a real mistake because there's benefit everywhere even in what's uh, some so-called shallow version or limited version the people who are engaging with that on that level are getting the benefit they're getting. And I have a trust that people will recognize when that's not enough benefit and they can intuit more transformative potential and then they'll seek out uh, other forms. So nevertheless, the people who tend to speak for Buddhism and who tend to get interviewed by the media for Buddhism are the people embedded in some sort of cultural version of Buddhism. Their criticisms of what we're talking about here, secularism and, and mindfulness as a practice by itself, what damage are they going to do to the perception of Buddhism as, uh, as a tool or as, a, as something more than just a religion or philosophy? I don't know. I'm not quite sure what you're, what you're pointing at. What's, what's the damage that you see? Or... Well, they look a little marginalized. They look a little bit like fundamentalists. They look like old-fashioned religious types who just are not fitting in. And are they giving Buddhism a bad name? I don't think Buddhism exists in, in, in any kind of singular sense. I don't think there is anything that I can find that's called Buddhism that is then going to be damaged by uh, this happening to it or that happening to it, whether it's the imagined damage of the way what you're calling fundamentalist or conservative Buddhists might speak about it, or whether it's theoretical damage being done by so-called limited or derivative versions like mindfulness practices, etc. 
It's like there's, there's a million versions and a lot of creativity around how to wake up. So the stuff that works will develop and flourish. And the stuff that doesn't work will dry up or die out. You know, that's the way it's happened for two and a half thousand years. I mean, this isn't new, people having new practice forms. That's happened all the way through the, the line of Buddhism. And then sometimes you'll have innovators within a, any particular tradition. And some of those innovators have got something that's really fresh and authentic and powerful and helpful for people. And then that innovation develops and it flourishes and becomes its own lineage or tradition, if you like, or, or practice form. And then other innovators, it might be quite good, but something's a bit off, or it might not be very good at all. <laughs> and, then it, and then it dies out. That's just the way things happen. And I have a lot of appreciation for that and trust to let that happen. And rather than looking outwardly at the forms I'm not involved and judging them as to whether they're good or not good or anything else, my sense is to do what seems to be the most authentic to me, what's really worked for me, and to transmit that as authentically and skillfully as I can. And some will really connect with that, and that's great. Let them come along with me. Some won't connect with that and will think, oh, this Martin guy, he's missing this or he's got that wrong. Okay, that's fine too. Let them go along with somebody else who fits them better. Some will be more attracted to more traditional forms with all the cultural and religious uh, trappings that go with it. Some will be attracted to a much more stripped down secular version. Some will be content with kind of simple practices for a bit more mental focus and a bit more uh, spaciousness around anxiety. And some will be really have their heart on fire to transform their lives and to go as deep as they can with that practice. All of which are good, is good, I would say. So for those those people who are really enmeshed in, in cultural forms, especially the, the ones that originated or, or first came to the West in the 70s, the, you know, the, the very Asian forms, what future do you, do you see them evolving? Do you see them sort of morphing into something more amenable to the West? Do you, do you see that there's talk or there was talk a few years ago about American Buddhism, for example. Do you think there's any such thing or will, will be any such thing that, that's particularly identifiable in a cultural sense? Oh, well, that's a big question. I, I mean, of course, the answer is I don't know. I think if there is, it's more going to be there are maybe the American Buddhisms. Again, I'm a little suspicious of the singular. Personally, I feel much more of an adapter than a conservator, if you like. But, for example, I wouldn't be interested in being a Theravadan monk in Europe with all of the, you know, living as if I was in Thailand, if you, if you like, with all of the, the cultural stuff going along with it in ways that, I, you know, I know Theravadan Thai monasteries, for example, in, in Europe that are like that. But... I have a real lot of love and respect for people who do that. You know, the, the purity and the nobility of expression of the monastic life is a wonderful thing. The problem I have isn't that people want to ordain and live as monks, even if it's an Asian tradition and they're doing it in the West. Well, no problem. The problem I have more is the tragedy, I think, of people that aren't doing that, that are living lay lives, but that their idealization of the tradition gets filtered through the monastic model. So that they end up, you're in this kind of limbo state of you're not ordained and you're not living that life. But <clears throat> one can use the sort of monastic or renunciate ideals to kind of actually not really inhabit a full lay life either. And then there's a kind of, you know, sense of using words, teachings of letting go and renunciation and simplicity as a way to not really inhabit the fullness of lay life and yet not be ordained either. 
I think that's more where the tricky ground is. So you're a, you, you teach a great number of people in a great number of places. Of all these people that you teach, did you see them going all in different directions? Is there, is there a general tendency, perhaps because that's the sort of teacher you are, for them to be more oriented in a secular way? Are they looking towards monastic traditions, away from monastic traditions? Can you identify a, a, a larger shape of, of the sort of Buddhism that's or the sort of practice that's being established? Well, in the way I teach it, it would have to be, you know, it's more, more away from the monastic forms. And that feels entirely appropriate for me because I'm not a monk, right? I'm not living as a monk. So what am I? I'm, I don't want to be supporting a practice that's suggesting to people explicitly or implicitly that their practice ought to look monastic if they're living a lay life. Yeah, but people are coming into these courses, various courses of meditation and Buddhism from many different directions and heading in many different directions afterwards. Yeah. And, you know, it depends. Sometimes I might be encouraging people to simplify and slow down their life in a way that could look like it's sort of heading more towards that kind of monastic ideal of renunciation. But I probably, because I spent a long time in Asia and I've spent and I've taught retreats in monasteries and I've been around people a lot who themselves have spent a lot of time kind of giving up on their life and going off to Asia or living in quite renunciant forms, I spend more time, I would say, encouraging people to get with the fact that they're in a lay life. And hence, like the courses I've been teaching, this course called Work, Sex, Money, Dharma, you know, that specifically addresses the fact that the monastic forms withdraw from working, in conventional sense, withdraw from sex, withdraw from dealing with money in order to do their practice. Okay, and that's beautiful. But the, the people I'm working with, they're all dealing with those things. And yet there's the tendency to sort of put them out of consciousness and then to elevate one's spiritual life in brackets, as if it's something different than that. But hello, no, that is your life. So then the, a lot of the way I'm working with people is getting them to open up and explore and find ways to more fully engage with what happens to them at work, where they go unconscious at work, what their uh, sort of subtle views are about work, how they reject themselves, and the same in intimate relationship and sexuality, and the way they deal with money, etc. Have you ever actually lived as a monk or a monastic type lifestyle? Yeah, I, I didn't ordain it, but I lived in a mountain hermitage in the Himalayas for two and a half years or so. And, but I was celibate for lo long chunks of time and, you know, living with no possessions. And Do you see any disadvantages to that lifestyle in terms of uh, uh, Dharma practice or illusory, illusory aspects of it? It would be a blanket view to say yes or no, because I think it's very different. I, like I say, I have a huge amount of respect for that lifestyle. So I don't want to be criticizing that, that lifestyle at all. If somebody spends their life as a renunciate monastic, and for me, it was a beautiful thing as well. And at some point, it became clear that for me, that wasn't a complete practice. You know, or not that maybe not that it wasn't a complete practice, because maybe if I'd done it for 20 more years, I might say differently. But it became clear that there was so, pulls in other directions that, uh, that have proved to be very, very fruitful for me. I'm, of course, looking back, I'm very glad with the way my life went that I didn't spend my life actually in a renunciate monastic form. But I'm aware that it had I, I may be looking back and saying, oh, I'm very glad that I did spend my life in that. So I don't want to be critical of that form at all. All I'm saying is because I'm not living that life, it's not enough to look at that as the ideal of practice. So let me let me rephrase my last question then. What, what were the advantages of leaving the hermetic life there for you? What did you see blossoming? 
Well, initially, I didn't see anything blossoming. I saw it all falling apart. You know, I saw my samadhi falling apart. I saw the sort of the security of not having to engage with a complicated world of interpersonal relationships. The challenge of that, it's like, oh, how to deal with the messiness of the world. That was actually very frightening for me, actually. I mean, really frightening. And I got to see how all the very sincere spiritual longing that had taken me into that life was also an avoidance mechanism. So then when that couldn't be avoided anymore, I got to really painfully and slowly and clumsily, I got to really wake up around how I was with other people and what I was doing in terms of my projections onto other people and my posturing and all the ego stuff that arises in the relational world, which, you know, that's why in many ways in renunciate monastic form, it's so powerful to do that. One removes oneself from a lot of that complexity and then one's practice opens up and that was a fantastic foundation for me but it just felt like I needed to use that foundation to then take it back into all the relational complexity of work and money and sex etc. I found that the transition from lay life to monkhood was a lot easier than the transition in the other way and people often ask me well what's it like to give up everything and become a monk and I say well it's really easy it's the other and, and when you actually explain it to them and they realize my god yeah it must be really hard it's a much longer learning curve isn't it right when I got to Asia and I felt immediately at home and you know I was happy to give everything up and, and it felt so freeing to live in the mountains with not very much but yeah coming back it took me a few years to actually get used to being in Europe and to really confront what I was going to do to make a living and how to really make my primary relationship with my wife a real practice and all the complexities and ambiguity to do with how I want to bring up my children. So instead of having that bliss of samadhi, you now have the bliss of the family life, the confusion and the, the chaos of, of family life. And that gives a very different sort of strength, doesn't it? A, sort of, a very different sort of mental strength. Don't you find it? it's deeper, it's broader? Well, again, I would hesitate to distinguish or compare that because, you know, I spent three or four years of pretty much renunciate life in Asia. And now I've spent the next 20 years after that of uh, another form of practice. So I put a lot more time into engaged practice than I have into monastic practice. No, no, I'm not, I'm not asking for that sort of comparison. Just a comparison from your own life and from your own experience. What I'm trying to show to the people who are listening to this is the, the range of experience that you can acquire through a practice of Dharma. At the one end, for sure, if you want to practice Samadhi, I'm quite convinced of this, that the retreat setting is the way to do it. It's not something that's very practical in a family life. And yet, if you want to really develop the relationships part of the Dharma, if you want to develop a, a practice within marriage and within uh, parenthood. That takes an enormous amount of effort, which doesn't generally bring much of this uh, samadhi-type bliss, but it does bring other things. Yeah. And eventually, they actually come together, you know, much more. Like, you know, that was definitely my experience at first, was of the sense of losing one's samadhi, as it were. And yet, actually, you know, my, my meditation practice always stayed really intact throughout all of that time. It was very clear to me that that was one of the ways to survive uh, family life, like was to get up early and sit every day. And, and initially, of course, when sitting with distracted mind and, uh, what, and all of that stuff. And the tendency is to compare by looking back to retreat. One remembers the times that one's mind was particularly focused or particularly peaceful or particularly quiet. And then one, one compares one's meditation now back to then and says, oh, 
that's when my practice was really good. Oh, that's how it should be. And then that, you know, that just discourages you. And it's really not helpful to compare your daily life meditation practice to how it was in retreat or in the monastery. The important thing isn't the quality of your meditation practice in daily life. It's the sincerity of the willingness to just sit down and stop. Even though mine might go here and mine might go there, just the willingness to come back to it. One, that actually does really transform over time. One's capacity to really settle one's mind, even within all the busyness of that, can really develop. But two, it's almost as if transformation happens despite the quality of one's meditation practice rather than because of it. And, you know, and when I ask people then, okay, you're comparing back and you're saying your practice isn't as focused or something as it was on retreat. But you sit every morning for a month and then you might be sitting with tiredness or distraction or, or agitation or, or whatever. But when you look back over that month, do you notice that by doing that, you're more sensitive to what's happening in you. You're more, you notice more when reactivity arises. You've got more capacity just to kind of be plugged in and attuned to what's happening. Oh, yes. Good. So keep doing that and don't judge the quality of it. No, well, I, I wasn't trying to judge the quality of the way that I, the, the way that it seems when you first, or when I first came to Buddhism and, and I was in awe of it and I was looking for some sort of escape, I suppose, and, and a certain high um, as, as an entry level Buddhist. It seemed to me that awakening was something very specific. It was, it was a, a very narrow almost state of mind. But as that practice has evolved in my life, it seems to me that awakening is something really very indefinable and, and that really engages life as a whole. It's something which I don't think, as you say, is not specifically Buddhist. There is a state of mind, or it's, it's not even a state of mind, it's a, a, an attitude or a, a way, a, an angle of perception that we have on life that changes, that provides freedom. How do you think that existed, uh, or in what sort of language did that exist in in the West before Buddhism really started to take root recently? I don't know in some ways because I'm not very well versed in history. But but the, some of the Christian mystics express a kind of breadth of vision and freedom in the midst of life, which is sublimely expressed. I think sometimes people like Meister Eckhart, for example. There's it, it both a kind of exquisiteness with what they're expressing, which is clearly a deeply spiritual view of life. And yet what one also often reads is that there wasn't, they, they didn't have a context or a body of teachings or the signposts in their culture by which to really make sense of their depth of vision, the depth of experience. And the tendency, therefore, for, for it to be quite disorientating and destabilizing, because there wasn't, they didn't seem to have access to people who could really validate their experience and point to the way in which it was actually an evolved experience, rather than a kind of pathological experience. That's very true. There is a great similarity between certain states of pathology and certain states of, I don't know if absorption is the right term, what used to be called ecstasy, what still is called ecstasy in the in the mystical traditions. The the entry of secularized or, or mindfulness-based Buddhism into the West is actually providing a framework for atheists, for people who feel compelled or, or intellectually or emotionally to, to embrace atheism. It's giving them an opportunity to find something which 
might not otherwise have been available to people taking that particular route, people who feel obliged and or compelled to reject religion. And in fact, religion is being rejected massively in the modern world. What role do you think Buddhism is actually playing here? How would you describe this? What is it offering? The word spiritual is, is becoming a little bit um, bankrupt in many ways. And yet, mindfulness is able to be presented as not necessarily spiritual even, but actually extremely pragmatic. Um, it's being taught in business. It's being practiced in, in the military. How secular can this be and actually transform our experience of life in, in a, what used to be called a spiritual way? That's a good question. I mean, I think in a way, this might sound like I'm kind of uh, dodging the question, but the answer has to be, we'll, we'll see. You know, it's like a grand experiment. We'll see. I don't locate myself in either world. I don't think, I don't think of myself as a Buddhist, in it, really. I don't sort of self-identify as a Buddhist. But I don't also feel any need to separate myself from Buddhism or, or and identify as a kind of secular, uh, in, in a secular sense either. For me, I'm just, I'm just like re interested in consciousness and how it can be freed up. And, so, and that's what I, try, I speak about with other people. And sometimes that might sound quite Buddhist. Sometimes I sort of refer to the Buddha or quote the Buddha or something. And sometimes I don't. So I don't know. The Buddhists with a capital B would say that the secular forms and mindfulness practices, etc., can only take you so far. And yet when I've also listened to John Kabat-Zinn, for example, addressing a bunch of medical professionals in, in a very clear kind of MBSR context that isn't to do with Buddhism, and yet speaking about emptiness and not self in very beautiful and powerful ways. So... In a, in a way, I don't think it's about whether it's within Buddhism or whether it's secular. It's about how deep the understanding of the person teaching is and how skillful they are at being able to communicate a depth and a potential of awakening and to guide their students in opening up their own consciousness. That transmission, that's more important than whether it's Buddhist or whether it's secular. Do you think that the Western society has reached the point of secularism and a more analytical side to Western culture than, or, or modern culture than there has been to many historical culture? There's a wider base of intellectual training than we've seen in any other culture. To what extent does this prepare us for such teachings as emptiness, which, which when I joined the Tibetan tradition, one of the first things I was taught is that emptiness is almost impossible to understand and that almost nobody can get it. And don't be arrogant enough to believe that you can. It seems to me that the state of, of existential ennui that we've, that we've reached in the West has, has predisposed us tremendously to that sort of teaching. And I think the modern world is extremely primed for this. What do you think of that? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I would agree, generally. I don't know actually what, I, what to add, particularly. I was having a conversation just yesterday, actually, with a, with a colleague here in Los Angeles where I'm staying, who was, you know, speaking about the concern about modern culture in terms of uh, social media and uh, the endless increasing technology and the way that uh, in, in her perception, you know, that that makes it harder to train the mind. I don't personally think that's the case. You know, the nature of getting older is that one remembers one's childhood, remembers that it was simpler, and then one tends to project that onto the next generation and say, things used to be much simpler, but look at this generation. Because Facebook is ruining them. You know, my parents, TV is ruining them. And actually, 
you know, there's a developing sophistication of mind and the way we pay attention. And it seems to me, actually, that people are more able to train their attention. You know, I think the route to the depth of Dharma teachings is a clearer route and a, and a quicker route, actually, than it has been in the past, which is, might not be a very common view. But certainly, well, like you say, I, those kind of Giluk Tibetan teachings that I've heard telling you that's going to take you lifetimes. And the best you can do, really, to get close to the truth of the Dharma is do good karma and hope to come back as a Tibetan. And then you might have more chance of understanding emptiness. I've heard that plenty of times. Well, I've got to pick up on this phrase. You said developing sophistication of mind. What do you mean by that? Do you think that would you have some sense of ongoing progress, mental progress, some sort of eschatology? Do you believe in an endpoint? No, no. But I think when we talk about evolution, we tend to see it in the past. There was evolution. We were amoebas, and then we made it to reptiles, and then we made it to apes or something, and now we've ma and now we've made it. But are you equating evolution with progress? Is evolution necessarily an improvement? I think it's it's an evolution of consciousness, meaning an improvement of consciousness. Yes, an improvement. I would say greater depth and greater sophistication and greater power of consciousness and greater capacity to know consciousness for what it actually is, and greater capacity to embody the fullness of consciousness. So, for example, consciousness is in everything. You know, a carrot has consciousness in it to a certain extent, but really not very much. A carrot can't get enlightened, right? Then you get to, a, let's get to a rodent, like a mouse. A mouse has more consciousness and more capacity to embody consciousness than a carrot. But I don't think a, a mouse can get enlightened either. So then let's come up to a, a higher mammal, like a horse. Okay, now with a horse, you really see a whole range, a lot of depth of emotion and a, a, actually a real communication you can have with a horse. And I don't know, really, because I don't know what the inside, I don't know what it's like to live in horse consciousness. But it seems that a horse, for all its depth of experience, it's not like Homo sapiens sapiens. In other words, the being that knows that they know, you know, that self-reflective consciousness. And I think that, that sapiens sapiens, that knowing that we know, the capacity not only to experience, but to actually consciously explore our experience, question our experience, notice where we're tight around our experience and let go around it. And the capacity to consciously evolve, to consciously open up and develop our capacity to embody the fullness of consciousness. That is something that has developed in human beings. And why would it have stopped now? It's still developing in human beings. And I, I think the capacity to inhabit greater depth and sophistication and fullness of consciousness is an ongoing evolution. But it takes special efforts, which may or may not be encouraged by certain periods in history and certain social circumstances. I think special effort massively accelerates the process. That's what spiritual practice is. It's the special effort that accelerates the process of evolving consciousness. So, so without it, it would sort of advance at a much slower pace, but it would still advance. That's my illusion, yeah. That's your story and you're sticking to it, eh? I mean, just look at the progress around the way homosexuality is viewed, for example, or the way gender uh, equality is viewed. You can see a, a process of evolution from people being just very rejecting of, of homosexuality, for example, and afraid of it and non-understanding of it to a sort of more or less tolerance of it to now a broad recognition in the whole of culture. Well, the whole of culture, I mean, in certain cultures. A broad recognition, though, in the modern cultures that we know, a broad recognition of 
you know, a, a kind of more increasing tolerance and understanding of things that are non-normative. Do you think that's irreversible? I'll tell you where I'm coming from, just, just so I don't know if you read John Gray, the, the, the English philosopher, but he, he has a lot to say about the notion of progress and where it comes from and our increasing tendency to believe that it's inevitable, that we're bound for some sort of state of superhumanity. So I'm just wondering if you have that sense of things just increasingly getting better and better, or whether there's anything fragile about that, if there is a danger of falling back into older patterns, if, if there is a possibility that this, which I see as, a, as, a, as a, a product of our civilization, that this civilization can decay. like Yeah, oh, and, and will decay. It has to. Everything, everything comes to an end, right? Again, I, I don't think it's too reductive to say things are getting better, which is one illusion, or the other delusion that things are getting worse. You can justify either illusion by looking at a particular. You, know, you can look at some things that have degraded, like the amount of forest that there is, and therefore the amount of carbon dioxide, etc., etc. Or you can look at specific things that have been improved, like mortality rates, for example. But generally, that's the beauty of the ta-ta-ta, you know, teaching that suchness. Things aren't getting better or aren't getting worse. Things are just like this. But it seems to me, what I observe is our capacity to actually embody and understand and know and live the truth of the just-like-thisness of life. That that's something that seems to be the nature of the evolution of consciousness that I observe, rather than projecting where it's going to go to. So I don't know where it's going to go to. Like I say, my sense is that, yeah, I have the sense of the, a, a general increase in sophistication of consciousness. In other words, the capacity to embody the fullness of consciousness seems to me greater now. Than in the good old days. <laughs> than in the so-called good old days. And the ten, I know that the prevailing tendency is to idealize the good old days. But, you know, Lao Tzu, who's a contemporary of the Buddha, when at the end of his life, he said, oh, when I was young, life was simple. People had time for each other and things moved more slowly. Now I see everything, everything's busy. People don't have time for each other anymore. Things move too fast. So what is that? Is that because life, things have got progressively faster with every generation since that, for the last two and a half thousand years? Or is that just the tendency as we get older to idealize the past and project it onto the world around us? Yeah, I think it's a psychological aspect of aging. For sure. I'm not sure exactly how much we stuck to the question, but like I said, I was looking for speculation. <laughs> yeah, we do. We definitely got a little bit into that. We went across the map a little bit. Nice to talk, Martin. Take care. Thanks, Stephen. For more about what you've heard in today's podcast, visit thenakedmonk.com. You'll find an entire webpage devoted to this and other podcasts, as well as dozens of provocative blog posts. You can leave comments, chat with other visitors, and email me, Stephen Scatini, with your comments and questions. The music on this Naked Monk podcast is The Sound of Vibor by David Kuckerman from his CD, The Path of the Metal Turtle. The Naked Monk is a labor of love. If you'd like to support our work, you'll find a donate button on the left side of our website, just under the logo. Or if you think there's some way you can help the Naked Monk grow, please send me an email. Thanks for listening. See you next time.